0: Hello and welcome to episode 69, a guest interview episode, and this one's a little bit unusual today because I'm bringing back a previous I'm going I'm going to play for you an episode that I recorded and and broadcast originally last summer. Uh the the guest today is Ashley Milne tite who has this fantastic podcast that I love so much called The Broad Experience. And we had such a great conversation, and I feel like it was from last summer, and I just, I wanted to rebroadcast it because I've been thinking a lot about what Ashley's subject is in her podcast, which is about women in the workplace. And I mean, it's all about kind of women and and inequality a little bit, and just differences in the sort of gender differences that come up in the working world, and it's fascinating. And it gets into so much more than that. It gets into family, and it gets into uh, just what it's like to be kind of at home. Who you know, who's taking responsibility for the kids, and and uh, anyway. So Ashley and I had this great conversation, and right now as I'm finishing up Positive Discipline Ninja Tactics, my book that's written for you. It seemed like a good time to bring back a guest that I know you're going to love if you haven't listened to her and I know you're going to love hearing again if you have and that way I have got I've got a great podcast episode for you today. And I can still be here in the background working away to to bring you this book, which is due out, if all goes well, it's due out April 24th. That's just a few short weeks from now and as I'm recording. And I'm so excited because it's just to kind of keep you in the loop here. It's now I've done my final revisions. It's off to, back off to my editor, who is, I don't know if you've heard this yet, it's my mom. My mom and I are editing each other's books, and they're both coming out on April to the 24th, Sunday, April 24th. Really, really exciting. My mom's book is a completely different from mine. My mother is a fiction author, and this is her third published book. Uh, this one, where she's she's self-publishing, and I'm so proud of her. She's spent, she's literally spent years writing amazing books, and the last those that were published were published. I think the last one was published probably two decades ago, maybe a little less than that, but close to that. And since then she's spent her time kind of feeling like, well, I guess I'd better go through a a regular publishing house like she she had to uh, end a relationship with her agent and so she has spent all this time writing, yes, but also kind of feeling like, who am I really writing for? and uh, agents, uh, you know, my mom would sort of send an unsolicited manuscript to an agent, and several times she's gotten the response of like, hey, I liked these chapters. Can you send me your whole manuscript? And so my mom would send off her whole manuscript, get her hopes all up. She'd, She'd be so excited. This is the moment she's thinking, and then she'd never hear back. And I mean, we're talking like five, six years of this. And as I've been writing and preparing to publish my book. I First of all, I knew I wanted my mom to be my editor. She's a fantastic editor. A lot of good insights. And I, I just knew I wanted her to do that. But I said, you know, can I can I compensate you? I'd like to compensate you, I said. And my mom said, well, no, I don't want to take money from you. And I said, well, okay, then I'm thinking something different. What if I coach you in terms of publishing your book yourself while you're editing my book? And she jumped at that idea. And uh, I, it's just mom, it's been so much fun if you're listening to watch you blossom. It's like, it's like, it's just been such a great, it's been such a great joy for me to to watch you kind of come alive with this and also know that I'm helping you. So and you're helping me because my book is a million times better because of you. So anyway, the book is now off to its its editor for its final edits. Hopefully, she'll look it over and decide it's good. And then we we sort of get the, we have to, it has to be formatted for Amazon. So I'm going to find somebody to do that. And it's a matter of kind of wrapping up a bunch of loose ends uh, and, I mean, that's really that's really where we are. So I think within the next couple of weeks, we can do this. And I'll be able to get Positive Discipline Ninja Tactics, key tools to handle any tantrum, keep your cool, and enjoy life with your young child. I'm going to be able to get that book out to you. And if you would like to get notified the moment it goes out, the moment it's live in Amazon, I think you are going to want to know that because it's going to be free for three days. You can sign up for that by going to PositiveDisciplineNinjaTactics.com. And giving me your email and I will email you when the time comes, which hopefully won't be too long from when this show airs. <laughs> and also when you sign up, I'm going to be able to share with you a-, a free printable fridge-worthy infographic that I had made up of how to handle every tantrum. And the great thing about this is it's helpful for us as the parents when we are in the, in the weeds of having, you know, when when our two-year-old is having a a tantrum every 30 seconds, because sometimes it feels like that's what happens, we can have this on our fridge to look at and say, okay, I know how to handle this tantrum. But it's also great for having up there for babysitters, for older siblings, maybe for grandparents, for people who might be looking after your young child. And you want to be able to say to them, this is how we handle a tantrum in our home. Please follow these guidelines. So anyway, if you want those things, the infographic, and you want to get notified as soon as the book goes live, please go to Positive Discipline Ninja Tactics and sign up. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode of We Turned Out Okay with Ashley Milne-Tite. I sure enjoyed, I enjoyed the interview. I think Ashley is an awesome person, and uh, I actually hope to have her on the show again. So keep your fingers crossed that that can happen. And here we go. Enjoy. Come on, guys.
1: We Turned Out OK, the modern parent's guide to old school parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out OK with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen
0: Locke Cole. My guest today has written that growing up, her dad worked at the BBC World Service and consequently for her, TV was cool, radio was not. But years later, after moving from England to the United States, she was sucked in by the great stories she found on national public radio. She started reporting for the NPR show Marketplace about all things business and attended the City University of New York's entrepreneurial journalism program. And these two elements sparked an idea for her fantastic podcast about women in the workplace with an absolutely great name, The Broad Experience where she gets to talk to people from all walks of life, all ages. One of my favorite recent shows was about stay-at-home dads, and another was about what it's like for one particular woman to be doing a job, construction worker, that is mostly done by men. It's clear that today's guest has a huge amount of insight to share with us. She's also a personal hero of mine. During my darkest days last summer, when I had such limited use of my hands, listeners might remember, her voice and the great stories that she told helped me remember that even without hands, I could still use my brain. For that, I owe her a great debt. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ashley Milne-Tite.
2: Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was such a lovely introduction. Oh,
0: well, thank you. I, I really feel all of that. I mean, I, I, you really helped me. You, you didn't even know it, <laughs> but you really helped me. And in fact, the first place I heard you was on Innovation Hub. Do you remember that show with Kara Miller, the Boston show? You see, I am aware of that
2: show's existence, but because I don't listen to Boston radio because I'm in New York, I, I had no idea that I'd been on Innovation Hub. Uh, Tell me more.
0: <laughs> it was about, I'm trying to remember this, it was about, it obviously had something to do with women, but it was, it was not so much about women as it was about like um, just racial, how people see other people you know in terms of and what they don't even know that they are bringing into uh, a a conversation or a meeting with someone who is is different than them and right, it was really right. fascinating i don't you know i don't know if you remember that conversation probably not word for word it was a year ago it was it was maybe more than a year ago when you actually recorded it
2: well, I wonder were they talking about me because I've, I've certainly never been in, interviewed by them. So but either I, it was something else that they picked up, or it was oh, one of my shows that they pulled from. Oh, you know what? that is possible that's too. Fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it heard the woman's name, who the host of the show, is named Kara Miller, and um, I, and I, I do remember your voice. So it's very possible that what was happening is they they picked it up. So. <laughs> Um, We'll have to go back and look into that a little bit more because anyway, that's where I first heard you and it was definitely credited, you know, you, the broad experience, that kind of thing. So I went and found your podcast And, uh, and that's how I got started listening. And I just, there are so many great issues that that you bring up. And I do hope to get to that. But before we do, I have to tell you, you know, you write that um, I love this quote, you write, I used to hate my last name. But now I'm quite fond of it, hyphen and all. We've been through a lot together. And I just I just had to share that I, I used to love my name, my maiden name was Karen Locke. And I really missed it when I got married and Facebook helped me to get it back because on Facebook, I'm Karen Locke Culp and, and it sounds OK. It sounds good. So I, you know, I like it. And I just wondered, what did you used to hate about your name? Like,
2: oh, just because it's difficult. Oh, I, I suppose. I mean, you know, when you're growing up and everyone else's last name is Smith or Brown or Cooper or I mean, obviously this this was in England. So last names are a bit more. Conformist, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, they're generally Anglo Saxon or they were, you know, 35, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So my, my name was just unusual because of the hyphen. Um, mm-hmm. It was just more difficult, especially when you're learning to write as a kid to have to, to sort of faff around with hyphens. To do all it's that. That's true. More trouble than you want to deal with. But yeah. as an, especially when I came to the US. Here, people seem to have real trouble pronouncing it. It's very rarely mispronounced in Britain. People see those two syllables and they just pronounce them correctly. But here, people want to turn it into all sorts of things. It isn't. They they want to go Milne, Milne-tighty. Oh. They try all sorts of things. And so it's just, so you really have to spell it out and also pronounce it for them. And that, it's just, it's just kind of a lot of baggage, even though it's a really simple two-syllable name. But um, yeah, I said that about, sort of getting used to it and coming to like it. Because, you know, after, after however many decades, and especially, you know, two decades of work, and and now that's my professional identity, Mm -hmm. I I sort of embrace its unusualness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is it is it a historical name? I mean, obviously a family name. But I mean, somebody like you, when I one of my favorite authors to read was P.G. Wodehouse. And he's always got these you know, these wicked long, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but he I writes, have. yeah. He's
2: always got double barrel names. I mean, double barrel names are quite common mm-hmm. in Britain. And this uh, doesn't, I mean, I'm, for one thing I should say, I'm not related to A.A. A. Milne. Everyone thinks, uh, or uh, uh, quite a lot of people assume that I may be a relation. And, and sadly, that is not true. Even though my initials are also A.A. and my brother's initials are
0: A.A. Oh, we're of not course. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um, but yeah, I mean, it is a family name. Yeah
0: yeah which is which is neat i i um on my mother's side our uh her maiden name was Carilia, cariglia c a r i g l i a and uh she she grew up in canada and everybody uh, you know, got it there. So everybody would say Cariglia down here. She, if she ever identified herself as Cariglia, she would get Cariglia. And I, in fact, I went to school with a girl whose last name was Tartaglia, and my mother would just freak out when I when I said, "Oh, Susan Tartaglia," blah blah blah. My mother would be like, "No, no, it's Tartaglia. You have to say it yes. right."
2: No, I've seen that a lot in in the U.S. Um, uh, Italian Americans tend to Americanize or Anglicize their names and they don't pronounce them the way they would be pronounced in Italy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the Italian is just so beautiful once you... You know, know, you get very used to Tartaglia, but once you hear Tartaglia, it just sounds so lovely, <laughs> you know. I know, exactly. So, so We Turned Out Okay is, is uh, when, when this show airs, we're recording it in June, but in, it's going to air in July, and we're actually going to be having, uh, we're going to be at summer camp uh, during those months. And uh, consequently, I wanted to ask you, what memories uh, do you have from your summers as a child? Like, what do you, what do you love to remember from when you were growing up?
2: Well, so... It, it fits in quite well with the theme of this show. I We used to come to the U.S. to see my grandparents, and uh, we have this family house in Pennsylvania in the Poconos. And so my mum, who's American, would bring us kids for six weeks during the summer. My dad would come out for two or three weeks at some part of that. And we had so much freedom. I was just thinking about this this weekend because I was there again, and I was thinking nobody's kids who are there now have the same kind of freedom we did you know 35 40 years ago so yeah very much in keeping with what you talk about I mean we would have breakfast say goodbye to our parents at breakfast go off with these other kids play until lunch we had to be back for lunch you know have lunch with the family that was over go out again with our friends and we would be far away i mean we would be quite far away from home we hung out with these kids who lived there year round so they knew every tree and bog and Mm -hmm. place to play and um yeah it was just so much freedom nobody was worried about us that i recall we just we knew that we had to be back for mealtimes but other than that we we could um, we could just go off on our own. And, I mean, my mum always had a rule about watching us when we were swimming, mm-hmm. which not everyone's mother was quite as strict as she was, that an adult had to be right there at the beach while you were swimming. But other than that, um, it was an incredibly free child. You know, I mean, of course, in London, I grew up in the middle of London, so there was nothing like that there. So oh, to, wow. just to be able to wander off in the woods for hours on end...
0: Oh, now has I look to be. back
2: on it and it seems idyllic. And we rode our bikes on the highway as well. I was thinking about <laughs> that this weekend too. We were driving on this road. I mean, it's just a two lane, you know, it's just a two lane road outside this sort of whatever community. But, um, I can't, I I never see kids on bikes on that road now, except in, in the part of it that has a a town, you know, Mm -hmm. on, on either side of the road. But my friend and I would, would ride maybe two miles down the road to see her grandmother. And we would just, you know, get on our bikes and, and we would make sure that we, I think we were riding on the right side of the road. So in other words, we were on the same side of the road. Gosh, were we on the side of the road where traffic was facing I us, or the what? other way? That always I can't used even to. Remember. Yeah,
0: that used to. I'd be like, which side of the road should I be on? I don't know.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I can't now. I'm. I now. You know what? I think we were on the same side of the road. That that we were on the opposite. No, we were on the right side. I'm. Mm-hmm. We were on the side that the cars were on. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: we were sort of at behaving like a car. Mm-hmm. But um. But now, I mean, my friend who I used to do all this with now has three kids. And they still go there. And her kids are having a completely different experience. They don't do any of that stuff. They're very – they're always very close to the house. All supervised.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is – how does that make you feel? I mean – is it weird? Is it?
2: Um, it is. I mean, you see, I have this um, ability to be totally smug about this because I don't have any kids <laughs> of my own, so it's really easy to be to say, "Oh, we did it this way, and it yeah. was so much fun." Any it's kids I ever
0: protective. have, yeah. But
2: it's so easy to say that when you don't have children of your own, and you, you're not desperately trying to, you know, keep somebody alive with mm-hmm. everything in you. So, um, I I do think, of course, I I mean, I've. Yeah, I also I used to read Lenore Scanese, you know, she's the author of Free Range Kids, which oh, I, you've brought yes. up before. Yeah. I used to read her column when she wrote for a paper called The New York Sun, which which died after several years of existence. But that's how I came across her and her ideas about child rearing. And I thought, oh, it's so interesting that somebody is talking about this in the 2000s and and, and letting her son, you know, take the subway home yeah. in New York City on his own when he's nine. And um, because, of course, in London growing up, I started going to school. I probably started walking to school when it was a local school on my own. When I was maybe 9 or 10, I was probably 10, and I would pick up another girl on the way, and then we would complete the walk. But it was only five minutes away. And then mm-hmm. when I went to secondary school, which, you know, in Britain you go to the same school from the age of 11 to 18 okay. usually. And it's not – we don't have high school. we just It's just called sec- – you have primary school and secondary school. Okay. So when I went to secondary school at 11 – Two mothers walked us up to the main road where the buses came, you know, the red double-decker buses. And they said, this is how you buy a ticket. You know, you're going to be doing this on your own later this week. So we got a couple of days of training with the mothers about getting on the bus. And then from then on, we were commuting um, on our own.
0: Wow. And and you – I don't
2: see that so much – In New York, when I, when I am on the subway and I see a younger, a child sort of under teenage years, you know, and sometimes I do see younger kids, maybe 10 on their own. I think, I actually think good for them or good for their parents they're letting them have this independence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, how do you find out, you know, what you're capable of, what you can handle?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I I mean, I think you know the training's important. Give them give them some training. Like we had our training as to how to cope with the bus system, mm-hmm. but then um, we wouldn't have dreamed of getting to school any other way. And I have to say, it took me a bit long to, to, longer to get used to the tubes in London because the subway is just a little bit more confusing, mm-hmm. a lot more confusing actually. And um, I remember when I st- when I first started taking the tube to school, I definitely did that thing where you get on the wrong train; it's going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. I found that all much harder to get my head round. Yeah, uh, it took a little, it l- took a bit longer to master that. But the bus was was easy, and it, it went really close to the school. Yeah,
0: so. yeah. And then uh, the thing about getting on the subway the wrong way is, eventually, you're going to do that. You exactly. You know, and and it's almost better. I feel like kids. I I, I know this actually. That kids have kids are much more easily adaptable. Like it would scar an adult who'd never been on the tube for a lot longer to get on the wrong one going the wrong way than it would a kid because kids are like, oh, okay, so I really screwed this up and that's yeah, all right. it was
2: funny. We laughed about yeah,
0: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it does. And then it becomes funny because you've got this memory now that is receding into the background as you get older and older and you can be like, aha, remember when that happened? You know, yeah. it's not quite so present. Yeah, you know. and oh, Lenore Skenazy, I I love her. Like when I was, uh, and I've talked about this a lot actually on the show. First of all, her book um, Free Range Kids is one of I have these books I call the Fabulous Five, and uh, I've I I've interviewed one of the Fabulous Five authors, this guy named uh, Daniel Wolf. I think that was episode six, um, and we talked about. His was really about, like, uh the book was called How Lincoln Learned to Read, and it was, it, he would take these really famous Americans and kind of talk about them as children. Like, what what did their childhoods, how did their childhoods prepare them for who they came to, ended up being? And he he talks about everybody from Ben Franklin to, like, Elvis. I mean, he's got some really interesting um Uh, profiles. And then another one on the list is Lenore Skenazy's Free Range Kids. And I really felt like every parent, even if you're not a parent, you should should read this book because A, it's funny and B, it's real commentary on what's happening in the world today and why are we so... Like, there's a chapter called, uh, if I remember correctly, it's something like Playdates and Axe Murderers, How to Tell the Difference, or something like that, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because parents are just so frightened of everything, and there was, when when my kids were small, they're 10 and 14 now, and actually, I still do this, like, if they're out of my sight, if they've walked down to a Friends or something like that, I'll still be like, ooh, you know, but I always think to myself, Lenore Scanese has this statistic that she talks about where it's it's something huge, like... a t- for a child to be kidnapped and held overnight by a stranger is is so incredibly rare. It's like one in one and a half million, something like that. And And that but that still doesn't I mean, to me, that could still seem like, wow, that's that's, you know, it could it could totally happen. And she converts it to years. She says, if you if you actually wanted your child to be kidnapped how long would you have to leave him or her outside and the answer is is insane it's 750,000 years if you convert that one and one and a half million statistic to years it's 750,000 years so I'd be at the playground I was at the playground on Friday and I was like I haven't seen them in a while hmm <laughs> 750,000 years like that's they're not getting kidnapped right now you know right. and- yeah but
2: it's so difficult for parents I mean you've alluded to this as well but and I'm I guess I'm part of it, not that I've ever worked for a cable channel, but the whole twenty four seven media coverage that that everything is blown out of proportion. so even though we know statistically that children are safer today than they were when we were growing up it, it's 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 hard to it's hard for parents to believe that when they're being bombarded oh by, yeah horrible stories every time something does go wrong because it doesn't just you know it's not just printed or it doesn't just air once it you've got that coverage going throughout the day yeah. on multiple uh, media channels yeah
0: yeah you n- you never hear about the kid who arrives home safely after baseball practice you yeah, know, after walking exactly. home from baseball practice
2: so um it's just it's so it is interesting I mean it's changed so much it was funny actually because yesterday I was walking to school with my boyfriend's son, so we live together now. So I am living with a child half oh, the week because he's yeah. with us exactly half the week. Yeah. And how how and old is he? How we old were, is the boy? We were walking to school, and and we bumped into this other mother and in, in mother in the building and her little girl. They're both eight. The
0: kids. Okay. Yeah.
2: And as we were walking along, you know, I was talking to the mother and then I would get drawn ahead um, with my boyfriend's son. And then at one point I was walking with the kids and I I noticed the little girl, she just turned around and she said, bye mama. And I thought, oh, where, you know, where did her mum go? I realized that I'd been swept ahead with the kids. And then you know, I I continued walking them with them to school, and I was mentioning it last night to my boyfriend, and he said, "Oh, well, she's training her daughter to walk to school on her own, and she's doing it in stages. So she'll walk to a certain point, and then she'll let her walk the rest on, the road, on her own." Mm-hmm. So that was what was going on, and that's why the mother just disappeared. Yeah. Because I had been drawn ahead with the kids, so she hadn't, you know, mentioned to me anything about this. But that was what she was doing, yeah. and I thought, "Oh, that's that's great to kind of tra- train them." In stages to 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 walk various blocks on their own until you're until they're walking the whole way on yeah, their own. that's and a great then, idea. And uh, then my boyfriend's son declared last night. Of course, it's interesting to see how he is with girls when they're together in the ha- in the apartment. They have a great time. But I've really noticed this, of course, with my gender lens. Mm-hmm. That when he's on the street or sometimes in school in the school playground, it's a little bit hi, but you know he's not engaging with her the yeah. way that he does when they're in the building together. So um, I can't remember where I was going with that thought. I was going somewhere with it and now I completely lost the plot. Forty's brain, I call it. Forty's brain.
0: I know that feeling very, very Um, well.
2: But anyway, he, he, oh, that was it. He declared after, you know, I was telling this, David was explaining to me what was going on with the other little girl and her mom. And then his son said, oh, well, you know, I could do that. I could totally do that mm-hmm. on my own. So I don't know if they tried it this morning. I haven't found out. But he clearly, knowing that this little girl was was doing this walk on on her own after a certain point, he was he was like, well, obviously I can
0: do that too. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> yeah. And my – you know what's interesting just about – I'm moving on a little bit to this gender idea because both my kids – uh, went through, and and I should say one of them we started homeschooling when he was seven, and the other one was n- just never went to school. So it, there's, it seems like it's more than just school that would cause you know a sort of like oh I don't I don't play with girls I don't talk to girls. Like both of them went through this period where they would, when they were maybe five six seven years old where they would say I don't want to listen to this music because it's being sung by a girl. And, and I'd be like, really? So, you know, will you, and I would point out, well, you like, I can't think who, um, I don't know, you like Joan Baez or somebody, I can't remember who. And they'd be like, well, that's okay. Like, <laughs> if it's a girl that I know, it's all right. And the same thing would happen with, with, um, with playmates, like they, that some of their closest friends live right down the street, and there's a boy and a girl. And both of them went through this period of like, well, I don't play with girls. And I would say, well, what about Bryn? And they'd be like, oh, well, Prince okay she's not a girl yeah. you know <laughs> like in the in the abstract it's a terrible thing to play with a girl but in the in the in the immediate moment it's like oh well she's i'll make an exception for her <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: you know exactly and, um, that... it's amazing how young it starts and if you say you know your kids didn't even have that influence from um coming from the culture at school
0: yeah exactly i mean it's where does it come from right and that makes me um that makes me wonder about a book, another book in the Fabulous Five, which you may have heard of called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. Did you ever hear? this? Yes.
2: yes. I, Peggy Orenstein's book. No, yes. I, I follow her on Facebook and I used to read a lot of her stuff in the New York Times magazine, but I haven't read the book. Oh,
0: it's, it's really great. In fact, it was so, it's so like relevant and interesting that my, my oldest son, I think was 10 when I read it, 10 or 11. And he was like, can I please read this book? And I, I said, sure, you know, and uh, and he, he did. I think he got a lot out of it. It's mm-hmm. it, but it starts with the idea that it's all about how the media again, you know, we're getting back into the media, but the, like advertising companies that have a, a product to advertise are figuring out that if you especially for young kids, if you can tap into this idea of I am a boy and this reinforces that or I am a girl and this reinforces that it, it you know, it's a it, it, they sell so much more. Um, because, because the kids really, really want that. And it goes on from there. I mean, there's a, there's a great scene in an airport where her like five-year-old daughter is begging for a Bratz doll. And she, she's, she says, she says, I wanted to say to her, you know, the girl's like, why can't I have this beautiful doll? And, and the the, Peggy Ornstein says, I wanted to tell her because they're slutty. That's why. And she says, I just, I couldn't do that. How do you explain slutty to a five-year-old? You just can't. Yeah. And, um, And, you know, just so it starts with this idea of what makes kids see themselves as boys or girls. And the hint is the big hint is it's not what, you know, what their private parts look like. It's it's got to do with how do you wear your hair and how do you how do you dress? You know, what what colors do you like? And it's 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 just crazy how how it's so reinforced by not so much what you you know, what you're born with, but what you are, how you are treated and based on how you look. It's really interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Um, so when I was growing up, I always wanted to, again, back into gender, I always wanted to play hockey, uh, ice hockey, like my brothers. We were a Canadian family. Both yeah. of them grew up. My dad coached hockey, and there was no way. I was not allowed because I was a girl. And the big question was, how will you be in a locker room? Like, how you can't do that because there's nowhere for you to change. And I'd be like, but I can change somewhere else. But it, it didn't happen. And um, I tell that story because I'm wondering – I'm thinking about this. Did you have any experiences like that? Uh, Sort of growing up separated from boys or whatever? And, And I guess I'm wondering if that helped lead you to the idea for your podcast
2: no it didn't actually that all came much later mm-hmm. when i was growing up i don't well for one thing i loathed hockey so oh, really? we are <laughs> Opposites in that regard now of course uh, you know at school in in britain m- most go- i went to a girl's school and you had to play field hockey that was mm-hmm. one of the sports and i'm just appalling at games and uh-huh. I have, i'm terrible with balls and and coordination <laughs> and all that stuff so I was not a sporty kid and I was so happy when I got to give up hockey. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, uh, I certainly wasn't co- I wasn't particularly conscious of those divisions, but I think they were everywhere. What one thing, my mother was very good. Uh, I just have one brother and my mom was actually very good at being, f- at, at, you know, I think a lot of women still do this. Um, Hopefully less so, but but I know some people who will even admit to it. They they treat their sons differently from their daughters, and they, as you experience, they tell the daughters, well, you can't do that because you're a girl. But more importantly, they let the sons off the hook
1: mm-hmm. when it
2: comes to certain things. So, um, you know, the sons don't have to... The, the mothers will do more for the sons. The mothers will pick up after the sons. And mm-hmm. it's completely unconscious, I think, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But it's just this idea that you you work for a man, you know, you do more for a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, my mother wasn't like that at all, which I think, which I'm very grateful for because I had some friends who's, who had very, whose parents did um, treat them quite differently and had different expectations for their sons and put more emphasis on their son's education. Oh,
0: wow. And
2: um, I will say the one thing that, that, that caught me when I was, I, I was a teenager. It became, it took me years to cotton on to this, but we, you know, we had, I think they're called, you know, in America, they're parent-teacher conferences. They were just called Parents' Evenings mm-hmm. in Britain. And I realized, it never never struck me at all, but my mum came to my Parents' Evenings, but my dad never came. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, And it never occurred to me that there's anything odd about that, because I thought, oh, well, I'm a girl and she's a girl. That's sort of how I thought about it. And it
0: was a girls' school, right?
2: And it was a girls' yeah. school. But then... But then at some point in my teens, I realized that my dad was going to my brother's parents' evenings. And I thought, Hmm. I began to think about this. And, it be- and that was when I, I really, I realized, especially as we were getting into the teenage years, which are very important in Britain, because you do these exams that really determine where you go to university. There's a lot of pressure on you from when you're sort of 15, maybe younger now, mm-hmm. to do well in these exams that, that truly do determine your future to um, a great, at least your immediate future to a great extent. And I think my brother is very clever, but he was was slacking off. And I think that's probably, my dad was concerned about that. But also it became clear to me that he thought my brother's education was more important than mine because Hmm. he was male. And that did hurt my feelings. You know, I sort of thought... uh, wow. Uh, It it never occurred to me before. And I just realized because of what was going on that that's why he was going to my brother's parents evenings. Um, And I I wasn't, I was completely the opposite of my brother. He's cleverer than me, but he's lazier than me. And I was always very hardworking. So I didn't need outside motivation to do my work. Mm -hmm. So I was perfectly motivated to continue and to try to do well even though I I realized that my education apparently wasn't as important. But it was that was a that was quite the realization when I was somewhere in my mid mid to late teens, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's you you know, what's so interesting is it's almost the exact like opposite of my experience. I don't it's I feel like there are some oppositions here. Like so I wasn't able to play hockey, right? But I did play field hockey, and I love, I totally love field hockey. But, um, so I had this sort of like, oh, you you cannot do that. That is out for you, because you're a girl. But I, maybe it's because I was the oldest, maybe because my dad and mom both, uh, but especially my dad, I feel like placed a lot of emphasis on, on my education, because, you know, I was going to have to support myself. I, you know, there was, mm. it's a changing world. And, and um, my, ma, my mom, my mom, had been told by her dad she wanted to study physics. And she was actually told, no, 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 girls don't study physics. You could be a secretary, a teacher, or a nurse. And she chose secretary, and she was a really great secretary. But she's got this brain on her shoulders that, and, you know, in her head that is just remarkable. She's a, she's a genius in a lot, a lot of ways. And I feel like she was really hemmed in by her by her growing up in Canada. Just She was the last of the generation before the baby boomers in. Um, So she just she just missed that kind of like, I'm going to I'm going to do what I want. She was really feeling very obedient. She, you know, she wanted to study physics, but she couldn't. Anyway, so my folks, whether it was one or both of them, they really emphasized education for us. And I feel like probably my mom was like, you are not allowed to discount the education of your daughter because she is really smart and she deserves every opportunity, just like her brother's um and so it when when i was growing up i mean the expectation was you are going to do well in school because because that is how you're gonna get ahead in life and then it's so funny because i remember being in college i went to college for i got my undergraduate degree in human development and family relations and um mm-hmm. i remember my dad saying we we wrote this quote on the wall because we thought it was so funny uh, my dad said, well, I think, you know, this is going to lead you sort of into teaching. And I think that teaching will make you, the quote was, a great second income. <laughs> and I can remember mm-hmm. saying, what if it's the only income, you know, like, and it's true. When I first started teaching, I, I made like $10,000 a year as an assistant teacher in a public preschool program. So there's definitely not a lot of money in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he was right in that sense. But the But the idea of, you know, me going on to get my master's degree was they were so thrilled and... It didn't matter boy or girl it was just like wow this is this is wonderful um so di- a little bit different like w- yeah you know yeah,
2: no i think and i think my my, my both my parents clearly saw education is important and you know my mother was well educated and her you know here in the states and her mother had gone to college as well which not all women of that generation did she was born in 1909 but um but i think when it came down to it when you get down to you know brass tacks they still or my dad at least still felt that the boys education was more important. And the funny thing mm-hmm. is, the hilarious thing is that I went on I, I was much more I, I was much more career minded than my brother. So it's just funny how things turn out. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean he's uh,
2: doing very he's doing very well now, but but he certainly I mean, that was something my dad, I think, definitely felt frustrated by, you know, why isn't my son like me you know why doesn't he want to do this kind of thing and this kind of thing and you know my brother's a you know he wanted to be a musician of course like so many people it's very rare that you can do that full time Mm -hmm. but I think um my dad thought why why have we sent him to this you know expensive school that my dad was very proud that he got into because my dad had such a different you know background and not a great education until he got to the university level, so he felt mm-hmm. really happy that he could give his children this something that he hadn 't experienced and I think he was rather frustrated when my brother didn 't live out live out yeah you know, the, the male stereotype yeah
0: oh my gosh and and so that's my dad had a well sort of similar situation where he uh, he almost didn't graduate from high school, which it was it had a different name in Canada. I think it was called JEP and he almost didn't graduate from JEP And he was hired by this company called Sun Life of Canada Insurance Company in, to work in the mailroom with the caveat that in a year he would he would take finish the classes he needed to finish and, and move on to, you know, to graduate from high school to get his his degree. And a year later, he's like, sure, sure, absolutely. And so he spends that year, whatever, skiing with his buddies and and just experiencing all that Montreal had to offer in terms of like, listening to music and partying and stuff. And, and his boss, you know, he has this year review and the boss says, okay, so give me your, give me your degree, show it to me. And my dad's like, Oh, what? <laughs> and and his boss said you know what I'm going to give you one more year you you must do this if you don't do it you won't have a job anymore and my dad kind of buckled down so he's now like 18 or 19 and and from then he he went on to get that degree he went on to uh to get his college degree through night school he took night classes till he had a degree in accounting and then he went on to get his CGA which is the equivalent of a certified public accountant in the US and so educate, he really started to see that education is what gets you out of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he really wanted us to to kind of take that lesson and our youngest but we had with my my middle brother and I were both like, we drank the Kool-Aid, we were totally sold on this idea. And our youngest brother was like, okay, he and it's so funny, like your brother, he was, we're all very smart. I mean, we're, we're you know, not to toot our own horn or anything like that. But we're a pretty intelligent family, very intelligent family. And uh, some of us have maybe more get up and go than others. And um, our youngest brother just, he he sort of got into college, he got into a great college, he went to the University of Toronto, but he he very nearly flunked out. I mean, and my folks were like, what are you doing? You're throwing it all away. And uh, it took them, they basically learned that to back off and let him find his own way was the best thing to do. And so sort of around when he was 30-ish, he, he really sorted himself out. And uh And he now, you know, he's got a very, he actually works at the University of Toronto. Um, He's like on the administrative side. I'm not even, he does, he works miracles for them on the administrative side, but I don't know what he does. And uh, he's, he's, you know, he's married and he's got this, he's, his wife is uh, a psychologist and she, she's an independent scientist now, which really means something in the, in the world of psychology, I guess. And, um. Just, I mean, uh, he's having this life that they're like really surprised about because to them, he was always the kind of lazy one who didn't really want to do much. (laughs) And here he is kind of Mm -hmm. grown into it. So, um, so you write, uh, just shifting subjects a little bit, you write that having babies, quote unquote, is generally concluded to be why women have difficulty climbing as high in the corporate world as men. But you also write that the story is far more complicated than that. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about the complications?
2: Sure well, you listen to the show so you know what I'm talking about but for other people, I mean I just think that until fairly recently the whole conversation about women in the workplace and why women were so far behind and why there are so few female executives and CEOs and all the rest of it it was all it all boiled down it was all boiled down to well you know women have these kids to look after so their careers suffer because of that because they are putting their children Uh, before their work and I always thought that that was a massive oversimplification of what was going on because at the time you know I was began thinking about this I didn't have children and I was having all sorts of difficulties that were completely unrelated Mm -hmm. and I think it's a lot of it's a lot of different things coming together and I do think the the parenthood thing is a huge one especially as we know that despite the fact that there are a lot more men who are engaged fathers, or who take on the full-time parenting role, rather female, in our partner works? Mm-hmm. It's mostly that's you know that those are the exceptions, not the rule. But still, I mean, all that I, I wanted to start this show because of all these things that run beneath the surface of women's lives mm-hmm. that we don't necessarily talk about, or perhaps can't even articulate. That's why I started the broad experience, Mm -hmm. um, because I was having experiences at work that made me think differently about that made me look back on my upbringing and think, huh you have been raised to be a certain way and it's partly being English and it's partly being female, mm-hmm. That the reason that you're behaving this way. And, and these are the kinds of things that got me thinking about starting a show where everything and everything to do with women in the workplace could be discussed openly, candidly. Um, because, you know, just for one example, and this is, this is my behavior, not any kind of discrimination, but just the whole ability to promote myself and my work Mm -hmm. I was in a situation where I was going for a job I've talked about this in talks I've given I was going for a job there were two of us up for this job and they were only looking at both of us we were both contract reporters at this show and the guy, there was a guy and, and there was me and I was told by colleagues uh, that, that, that the, the male candidate was not only had he applied for the job, but he was calling the managers and telling them how much he wanted the job and uh-huh. how much he wanted to move to New York, why he thought he'd be suitable. And I remember thinking, God, how how vulgar mm-hmm. you know you, you know how unseemly mm-hmm. <laughs> to be calling people and boasting about yourself when you've gone through the application process and you've had the interview we'd both had an interview which had to be a phone interview because the editors were in a different city but i mm-hmm. i felt my attitude was I've done everything that's expected of me to apply for a job and, mm-hmm. and um, to do more would just be overkill. And, and I, I, you know, I keep bringing up the word vulgar, but to me, this, all this self-promotion did seem
0: terribly vulgar. Mm-hmm. Almost like well, not classy. Yeah. Oh, he got you the know, job. Yeah. Wasn't me. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that
2: really made me, and of course, I'm sure, you know, there are lots of reasons why they picked him over me and they just ultimately, I'm sure just thought he was the better reporter but i i just couldn't stop thinking about these things that i had been raised to think were not good mm-hmm. and here in a work context they worked very well for him mm-hmm. and it, it just it that's really what got me thinking about gender in the workplace not not i i i just drank the Kool-Aid and and lived life as most people in the world do thinking this is how women behave, this is how we should behave, Mm -hmm. and so on, until I started looking around me at work and dissecting what was going on, and thinking, there are all these influences around me, things that I'm not even conscious of, because they're so much part of society, the messages we get from society, the message you've, the messages you've been raised with. Mm -hmm. And that's really what, what sort of galvanized me a couple of years later to start a show on this topic. I think that's just one example, but, you know, unconscious bias. um, Gosh, I've done so many shows. There are so many reasons why women aren't further ahead and and children and family are one of those reasons. But the way we're raised and what we think is appropriate for our own behavior Mm -hmm. is another one of those reasons. You know, the workplace is default setting male. It was created by men for men. So it's no wonder that a lot of women don't feel that they fit. And so many women leave corporations, not because, I mean, there's been research on this, not because they're going home to look after their families, but because they just don't feel they fit in with the culture. It makes them so uncomfortable. So thus, part of the reason that there are so many entrepreneurs and solopreneurs out there these days, because corporate life is so is so alien to the way um, women feel. And, of course, not every woman feels like this. And there are plenty of people who have adapted very well to their particular workplace. And, you know, Mm -hmm. every workplace has a culture of its own and it's all about finding the right place for you. But it's not only my own experiences, but so much of the research that I've perused in the last few years that I've been doing the show, there are so many forces at work that make life a little more challenging for women simply mm-hmm. because women aren't the workplace's default
0: setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you're, you really are brought up to, you know, you, you, you stay quiet. <laughs> you don't, you don't raise your hand, yeah. you know, you, um, because you're almost like, I mean, I feel like the way I thought of it was I, my job for uh, in society is to help showcase other people like to step back so that other people can have their moment. And if you think about it, a lot of those other people are guys, because they're the ones stepping forward. Yeah, exactly. That's
2: very, I mean, that is so female. I mean, women are conditioned to be helpers, to accommodate others, to be nice. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why for so many of us fighting for more money is fraught with difficulty, because we haven't been so many of us have not been raised to advocate for ourselves, and that's a real problem when you get into the hard charging
0: workplace mhm, mm-hmm. yep, yep, and it's really I feel like a lot of i don't know if this happens with with everybody with kids, but certainly a lot of the people that I know the first time that I stood up for anyone was when I had to stand up for a, a kid right. and, and so it like if you think about doing that like that comes easily i am I am not letting my child get whatever, I mean, I, I don't know if, uh, if somebody bites them or, um, like on, you know, when they're really small or, or hits them or something like that, or take something away from them that, uh, not, not take something, I mean, kids have to work stuff out for themselves a lot, but, but it's much easier to say, you know what, I disagree with this on behalf of somebody else. And a lot of times for, for the women that I know who are moms, it's, it's the first time that happened was like, I mean, taking my son out of school. I, I really, there was a lot about that, that I had to I had to go up against my husband, my folks, um teachers, principal, uh just the 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 societal especially now we're talking uh seven or eight years ago was very much like, "Oh my god, if you you, you know, you're going to what are you going to do? Like keep him in the basement? Are you are you, is he is he going to leave society because you're homeschooling him?" and it's like, "No, that's not how it is at all." But um but I had to get comfortable advocating for him. And after I did that, that was when I first realized that I, I could do that for him, but I'd never done it for myself. And uh, and I've had, I, I mean, not to get into it too, too much, but these last almost four years now for me have been a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of health problems and they all, it's a mystery tendon disorder that I've had. So I spent, uh, starting in 2011, the summer of 2011, I I became unable to walk. And I spent uh, fall of 2011, winter of 2012 in a wheelchair. Like whenever I left home, I could get about 20 steps and then I needed a wheelchair. So um, I I basically gave up. I mean, I felt like in that winter, I thought the physical therapists were basically saying, well, we've done all we can for you. And I'd been to an orthopedist who who just sort of, at the end, she basically put a really expensive, pretty much untried uh a brace in my hands and said, "You know what? This is all we can do for you. I'm I'm really sorry." And my leg was half the size of the other leg. I had no muscles in it at all. And and I went home and thought, "Well, okay, I guess that's it." <laughs> oh, and it God. wasn't until my husband and my folk, my parents came to visit in January, just to try and boost my spirits cuz I I couldn't do anything. I mean, I I literally lost the ability to walk. And Uh, I was really down and they, they combined with my husband, just, they took one look at my leg and they were like, you got to do something about this. This can't be the end. And um, they, they have a friend in Colorado where they live and they live a very active life. They retired uh, almost 18 years ago now to go and be, my dad became a ski instructor for Breckenridge, Colorado. And I mean, they have this incredibly active life and so do I. I I had always been a really active person, yoga instructor, aerobics instructor, really good skier, um, field hockey player. I loved even that. And they just couldn't let it go. Whereas I was ready to just drop it, you know, and, and just live like this. And so I ended up seeing a sports medicine doctor on their recommendation. Um, and he was like, well, of of course we can help you. And he, he advocated for a kind of physical therapy called aquatic therapy, which is basically you get in a pool and do, do stuff in a pool. And I remember thinking, what BS is this? How is this possibly going to help? And, uh, I got in the pool and I I could walk forward in the pool, but I had to push my leg to go backwards that first time in the pool because I was so weak. I had like no hamstring muscles in the back of my leg. And I can remember getting out of the pool and feeling stronger. And then I met in that physical therapy office. There was a physical therapist who had been he actually left Venezuela because of the. Because of Hugo Chavez, he had like he and his family had left Venezuela to escape Hugo Chavez. And he, before he left, he had been for 18 years the head of rehab therapy at University Hospital in Caracas, a guy who really knows his stuff, right? And he was at this physical therapy office, he was an assistant physical therapist because that was the job that he could get. And he figured out what was wrong with my leg and fixed it within like two weeks. And wow. And then it was a question of, then I had to spend the next probably eight months kind of relearning how to walk. And of course, there's other, I won't get into it, but there's other complications and stuff like that. But it was only after meeting this doctor, the sports medicine doctor, who kind of put me on the right track that I started to regain my ability to advocate for myself, like to be able to say, hey, this is wrong. Let's figure out a way to fix it rather than saying I give up, you know, and I I don't know how much of that was just pain and and depression or whatever, but... um, but it's I now I mean, four years later, I have I have like a team of people, I have a physical therapist, he's a physical therapist that I work with. Uh, I have a rheumatologist, I have like my primary care doctor, I have acupuncturists these people are all involved, but they're all involved because I went out and found them, you know? Yeah. And uh, I feel like that is something that a lot of women aren't good at advocating for themselves. You know,
2: I agree. Yeah. I agree. And um, that's again, it's partly why I wanted to podcast about all this stuff and just bring you know highlight things that people have done that listeners could perhaps get inspired by yeah yeah. use in their own lives
0: yep and that's and that is a when I think about it last summer when I had five percent use of my hands that's exactly what happened to me I would think to myself you know what I don't have to live like this listening to you I would think okay well here's something that somebody else did that worked for them and to look at it as a gender thing was fascinating to me because it it's a it contributed to my thinking about like this puzzle that is my own myself my health how i work with my family how i you know work with doctors or whatever and it was all really helpful in making me feel like yes i can i now i can recognize that this this idea of thinking of myself as less than somebody else because of my gender is i could identify it and then work away from it so i really have to thank you for that that was a huge help <laughs>
2: Oh, that's so. That's so nice to hear. And also, what's so interesting is that, you know, like me, you didn't click to this stuff
0: exactly. until much
2: later. I mean, this is what's so interesting to me is now I'm steeped in it, and I feel, oh, sh-, but you know, we all know that's because of gender stuff. But it, it, most people don't think about this. We're all going, a, a, we're all going about our day to day lives as we always have. With all, you know, internalizing all the messages we get. And we don't think about this, we don't dissect it and look at it. And and I've heard from a few other people that have actually said something similar, which is, oh, this made me look at my life and my career in a different way. And it's been really helpful. And that's so meaningful to me because, Mm -hmm. well, I don't know, well, you've produced a ton of podcasts in a short amount of time, but. it's it's hard work to, to produce my show and, you know, get the guests and, mm-hmm. and edit the tape and to tell the story around them. So to finally have people giving feedback is, is really wonderful. Uh, yeah,
0: very validating, I hope. Yeah. 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 Um, and I guess I'm thinking about, you know, with all we've been talking about, uh, I have kind of a two-part question Um I, I'm wondering what advice could you give to women about succeeding in their careers, and also what what do you think parents could do to help their, especially daughters, but kids, succeed as they go off to the workplace?
2: Mm, gosh, those are, those are such big, fan I, questions. They are, they are. I feel, I feel a bit unequal to the first one because, of course, there are so you know people are in all sorts of different types of careers and different types of workplaces, and mm. and what works in one workplace may not work in another i mean the things that i wish i had known when i was 21 22 and going into the workplace were things like you know do not believe what my dad i mean you know he meant well but he was from a different era and he told me you know, the one piece of career advice I, I, I think I ever received from either of my parents was you know, work hard and you'll be recognized. Mm-hmm. And this is just nonsense, I'm afraid. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it may work for some people, but if you are a woman, this is the problem with so many women. That's exactly what we do. We beaver away expecting to gain recognition for what we're doing. And we tell ourselves, well, I'm working really hard. So of course I'm going to get, you know, the raise or the promotion or whatever. No, you're not. Yeah. You're not. You have to advocate for yourself. Huh. I wish i had known that when i was 21 22 so that's that's the first thing i would say i think it's really important to learn how to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. and uh, a book i recommend to anyone who will listen which is also one of the authors anyways um in the boston area is this book called ask for it it's by sarah lashover and linda babcock and linda is she teaches at the heinz school at um Carnegie is it Carnegie Mellon or is Heinz I think it is is anyway she teaches negotiating skills and they wrote this book about women in negotiation and it's it's my little bible in fact I need to reread it because Mm. I recommend it to anyone who will listen and it's not it doesn't it's not just about learning how to ask for more money it's about learning how to ask for all sorts of things Mm -hmm. you know your situation could be reflected in there it's about it's about learning to advocate for yourself. And they give all sorts of concrete examples. And I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's incredibly useful. Awesome. Um, and just, I mean, it, it just really helps, I think, no matter what sex you are, to be aware of some of these forces that are, that are at work in the workplace. I think... I think the problem is so a lot of men, I would love it. I do have male listeners and I love hearing from them, but I'm sure I don't have that many simply because, you know, the show is called The Broad Experience and a lot (laughs) of guys think, oh, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. It's Uh all about women. I'm not interested in that. But women aren't going to progress as a group unless men are, unless men get some of the reasons why they're not progressing and help to to sort of remedy things Mm -hmm. and um they can only do that if they you know if if there are honest conversations about what's going on on and the fact that it's a a guy so many guys don't find it tough to advocate for themselves they'll just go ahead and do that they may think there's an even playing field at work but it's not really even when nearly all the women aren't advocating for themselves it Mm -hmm. you know I, i heard a fascinating um actually piece of another podcast recently where they, where the head of HR at Google, who of course has some, you know, silly title in my view, but head of people or whatever. (laughs) um, He was talking about the fact that, you know, Google's been trying to do more to retain women. And one of the things they did was institute this, this rule whereby um, women, had to put themselves forward for promotions, you know, they said, okay, every week, uh, I can't remember what the time period was, but, you know, you, you need to put yourself forward for this job. And during this time period that they had it sort of as a rule that you needed to, that women needed to put themselves forward for this job, the number of women applying and getting these jobs went up. As soon as somebody forgot to send that email reminding people to promote themselves, the number of women fell. Hmm. Applying for these jobs fell. Hmm. Like that's huge. That just tells you women need a push. Mm-hmm. Women women need to be pushed, and men need to realise that mm-hmm. nothing will change as long as we're still operating from our own heads, where we think. You know, me, you know, most men just think, tend to think, everything's equal. It's all fine. Mm-hmm. Anyone who says otherwise is a whiner. And I really wanted to get away from that in my show, and I I, I, I would love it if. If um more men realize that it, things aren't as equal and as even as they think they are. They're seeing everything from their perspective. Mm-hmm. The moment you start sharing perspectives and talking to other people about what they're experiencing, it would just open things up greatly, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I forwarded the show off to my husband several times. I can remember anything that has to do with with uh interpersonal, you know, workplace conversations or whatever. And I I'd, I'd felt like I did that because he's a guy, but he works with women all the time. You know, it's not you don't exist in a vacuum. It's just like you're not a parent, but you're a great guest on my show because you were a child and you have experiences in the world. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. was indeed. <laughs>
2: um, and I mean, as for kids, I mean, gosh, it's so, I think the world, the work world is so much more competitive than it was in the early nineties when I went into it. And I, I spoke to these, I did a show fairly recently about women in their twenties where I learned a ton because I felt like oh, there's such different creatures from me and they're up against a different work world yeah. than I was up against 20 years ago. So, um, I, but i mean i would almost say the same things to kids as i would to um to younger women who are nearer the beginnings of their career which is uh, you know a, about uh, it's about self-advocacy mm-hmm. now I, I would say of course i don't want to taint um the millennial generation because that's so boring but at the same time i do think you have to be a little bit careful with how you advocate for yourself and you you have to be aware that you're working with people from different generations who do things differently. Mm -hmm. So going in with what can come off as an entitled attitude, isn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. I think you have to work. You have to, you have to work out how to work with people who perhaps think and, and enter the work, think differently from you, enter the workplace at a different time from you. And, are used to putting their views forward at work in a slightly different way than perhaps you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, the more work experience you can get before you actually enter the official work world, I think is, is fantastic. Cause then you won't be coming to it. You won't be sort of dropped in by parachute to this weird world. Um, You know, the more, yeah, I think the more experience you can gain beforehand
0: yeah, That's volunteering great. And just or... be,
2: be aware of those generational differences. Don't think, don't assume that everyone thinks like you you yeah. need to learn how to communicate with with different with people from from different backgrounds and different generations Yeah,
0: yep. so true well ashley milne we are coming to the end of our time today it's been so amazing to talk with you i've really tried to keep the super fan vibe out of my voice but i'm not sure how well i succeeded <laughs> listeners you can connect with ashley at thebroadexperience.com. you can listen to her fantastic podcast there on itunes on stitcher and i recommend that you go and do that right now i'd love to hear your thoughts on the show today uh, listeners what has your career experience been if you're a parent how do you balance that with raising children how are you raising your daughters and sons to help them be successful when they grow up please send your thoughts to me at Karen at we turned out slash or, or Karen or either Karen at we turned out com or we turned out slash contact to, at the contact page you can also friend me on Facebook At Karen Lock Culp. I'm trying to get together a Facebook group, but I haven't yet. Or you can find me on Twitter at Stone Age Techie. I hope today's show gave you a little bit of inspiration or a new idea to try out in the world with your kids. If you liked it, if you think other parents just like you would like it, One of the best things you could do would be to head over to iTunes and shout about it with a rating and or a review. The more five-star ratings we get, the more people we can reach, and soon everyone is enjoying the best of old-school parenting. It would be awesome if you could support the show in this way. And special thanks today to our producer, the man who can peel a butternut squash faster than anyone I know, soon-to-be 18-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to we turned out okay i want to take to australia find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com where you'll find show notes and more
0: what do you call cheese that's not yours nacho cheese
1: and remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods. <laughs> <laughs>